So, like I was saying, we are in the middle of a series on a vision for biblical love. And last week, we learned that marriage and God's vision for love is a, is a vision that is so encompassing for all of our lives, our real lives, that it includes the gamut of family and friendship and sexuality and sacrifice, that all these words um, there's a word for it in the Bible to, that we now translate as love. And this vision for love 
in life is worth a lifetime commitment, whether we're married or not, that, that it's to be honored and regarded and taken seriously because it's at the very centerpiece of what it is to be a human being. And so this week, we're going to turn the corner a little bit and ask the question, okay, but seriously, and then we just had a testimony to this. Seriously, in a, in a broken world with broken people, with all the pain of it and all the risk of it, is a commitment to a lifetime of endless love a rational act? Okay? Now, uh, this is my wife, Deborah, if you haven't met her yet. I may not have met you yet myself, so if I haven't met you yet, come up and say, hey, I want to I know you personally. But this is my wife, Deborah, here, and we're going to be going on, we are going on 30 years of marriage here in October. Okay? We're getting to that stage where when we walk in someplace and we're introducing ourselves and they find out how long we've been married, people go, Really? I mean, really? Like how, like, how do people do that? You know, how do they? And, and there's, a, there's a reason behind that question, right? A, re, a real question. Because people have seen or have grown up in or maybe have been a part of a lot of very painful marriages, right? And we live in a culture that's seen a lot of that, has experienced a lot of that. And so when it, when it comes time to get married, people are doing that a lot less. So marriage rates are on the decline in the U.S., really in the West. Cohabitation's on the way up because you can, you can test drive it a little, a little bit more that way. Seems a little less risky. And for the first time, really, in, uh, I think, census history in the U.S., there were more unmarried households than married in the U.S. a couple years ago. So that's the context I know that I'm speaking into when, I, when we address a question like this. And yet, when we hear a song, like Trevor just sang, about forever love, there's something deep inside of the human heart that just reaches and longs for the reality of something like that, right? Maybe not just romantic love, but the, the idea of being safe, to be seen, to be valued, and then on top of it, for it to be something that you could actually say forever to, like no matter what. I mean, that is the stuff of poetry and Love songs and billions of dollars of advertising just, you know, for, like the, the slogan goes, for everything else, there's MasterCard. Right? But this can't be bought with money or re really even with effort. You know, Dr. Seuss said it this way. You know, he's been, he's been saying things in ways we can understand for kids and for all of us for a long time. You know you're in love when... You can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams. And you know, there is something about this idea of endless love that is the most captivating dream of the human heart. We have to say the why. Why? Why, why is this longing so universal? So quintessentially what it is to be a human being. And you know, the Bible's answer to that is that your origins as a human, your very beginnings are in perfect love. In fact, if you were to open your Bible and look at the very beginning of the story, the big story that the Bible tells you, you will find, you will find there a love story. In Genesis 1, we read this about human origins that God said, 
let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, I'm hoping you're noticing the plural pronouns there. Is God having a conversation with himself? See, in Christian theology, we're, we're given a, a vision of God where revealed, a God is revealed to us who from all time without knowing has existed as a relationship, a three-in-one. Christian theologians call this the Trinity. It is certainly a mystery that God exists as th- in three persons, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But let me just say this, that when the Bible actually references the very essential nature of God, the Apostle John told us that God is love. He is love. He's not just loving. It's that from the very heart of God, there is a relationship, a ceaseless flow of love inside of the Trinity. And what we saw there in the origins of creation is God having a conversation about you, about the generative nature of his love that that out of freedom created human beings in his image. Now hang with me for a second because this is so important and so beautiful. Do you know that Christianity is the only faith system that I'm aware of that can actually explain the origins of love and relationship. You know, secular materialism would just say, love is a biological survival mechanism. A monotheistic religion has no real philosophical way to deal with the essential quality of relationship or love. But Christianity as a Trinitarian view of God, that God is love, explains the quest of the human heart for love. To be made in the image of God, you see, is to be made, to be fired from your very beginnings, your origin, from love, through love, to love. You see, the intensity of our quest for love is not sentiment only or as some would say, irrationality. It is the fire of divine life in your soul. It is your life force. It is your essential nature and being. And you simply will not rest until you find it. But here's the, here's the reality of the biblical story. The Bible would tell us that as humans made for perfect love that comes from God. We can share love, but we are not the source of it. And that means when we look for perfect expressions of love in another person, however beautiful that expression might be, you are looking at a derivative of something that is perfect. And it can never bear the weight alone of the hopes that you would place on it. Which means when we think about our marriages or we think about our relationships with other people, when we look to people for ultimate things, we set ourselves up for all kinds of disappointment and heartbreak. You know, the great philosophers and theologians of the church have told us this in various ways, that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that only God can fill. 
and the story of how humans have misdirected their good search for love. It's why love and pain so often appear together, right? Because only God can love perfectly. Only God can have endless love. Only God can bear the weight of the human heart. And this is why the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that love itself has come down and expressed itself in human form. And we have seen him and can know him. That God continues his quest for union with us, for perfect love through the full expression of the giving of himself in the person of his son. And despite our infidelities, God is still after you. This is the good news of the gospel. The power of this gospel is that any kind of person, however broken and they're searching for love, can be reborn with divine love. In a way that God not only shows to us in ways that we can feel but he actually puts that love down in the inside of ordinary people and makes us alive now from the flame of divine love actually inside the human soul. The apostles put this in many words, right? But this is one of them. This is the secret, the secret to everything that Christ, perfect love, now can live in you. So now I ask you this question. This is a marriage series, so let me, let me rewind. What does this mean for our relationships? Hint, pretty much everything. You see, um, I've been married 30 years and almost. You know what my hope for my marriage is? that God's love can grow in me, that it can heal me in the deepest places, that it can enable me to extend something that's not ultimately dependent on the relationship, but it comes from somewhere outside of it, that I can hook into it You know, the Apostle John again, if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. You know, it's a process. It takes a lot of grinding. Kind of drives us down below all of our resources, right? Marriage does and relationships do to where we have to reach really deep to live in God, to grow in God, to access God in ways that I can share with another broken human being. And let's face it, we're really, none of us are really a a good bargain, (laughs) right? And so what I want to say to you is first, first and foremost, I'm going to give you some practical stuff here in a minute, but this is so profound. Since endless love lives in you, in Christ. It can fire endless love. Enduring love in your life and marriage. Even when 
pain is also present. Even when brokenness is also present. Even when betrayals are present. Now, I want you to hook into that hope for your marriage. I also don't want you to hear me say some other things. <laughs> some of you have been through painful divorces. Some of you are in situations in your marriage presently that you literally don't know if it's actually best and most loving. This is not a message on that. There is much hope and much conversation to have about that from God. That is not this message. There are some of you who are in abusive situations or have been. And you are presently or your children may be at risk of harm. This is not a message on that. This is not endless love to bear up under abuse. If you're being abused, you reach out for help. You call the police. You call your pastor. And we help you get safe. And then we help work on this, okay? So this is not a message about gritting and bearing this. But what I am also saying to us is that we can, the love of God is not fragile. And it can bear up under the weight of the real tension, the real unhappiness, the real heartache of real marriage. Okay? And there is a resource that goes beyond your marriage from God. You with me? Okay, so we're going to turn the corner now. And in that love, I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about how to practically foster sustainable love in your relationships and in your marriage. Okay? And not to be outdone, last week, Pastor Dan, you know, quoted some pretty steamy stuff from Song of Solomon. I also have a PG-level quote from this ancient, romantic Hebrew poetry. Okay? You are my private garden. You are my treasure, my bride. A secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Awake, north wind. Rise up, south wind. Blow on my garden. Spread its fragrance, its fragrance all around. Whew. Okay, that's hot. All right, so we're going to step back off that for a second. And I'm going to grab the garden imagery here. You see the picture here? Love is a garden. Your relationship is a garden. Okay, I'm going to give you three things about your garden to cultivate and tend it. Okay, first is this. Gardens are a lot of work. You've got to be willing to work. You've got to be willing to work in your garden. And actually, there's some myths that we need to get rid of. We need to disavow pretty quickly because they're in the popular kind of culture, love songs, Hallmark cards, this kind of stuff that actually just do not actually serve us well, right? Here's the first one. Marriage completes me. No, it doesn't. It reveals you. Okay, so under the, under the um, you know, every crack, every flaw under the intensity of the fire of love is going to, it's going to be more visible. Right? It's going to be dealt with. It's going to be eventually burned up or burn you up. Um, this is also relieving for singles, by the way. Some of you that, wish to be, that are single and wish to be married, there is, there's sort of this sub-idea that in order to be psychologically complete, to be fully human in some way, you must be married. Well, that's this bunk. Jesus was single. The Apostle Paul was, okay, I just, I'm just going to say, this is a myth. 
And so for some of you, by the way, Valentine's this year on February 14th is on Wednesday. That's also the beginning of Lent, the season of the church when we lean into the darkness of the world in us and around us, and we mourn it, and we name it, and we anticipate resurrection. And some of you that hate Valentine's Day that are in here and you know who you are should lean into Lent this year and let it burn. All right? Myth number two. Marriage should be easy. And, you know, relationships require tremendous effort. So do gardens. Myth number three. Disagreements must have resolution. Actually not. Do you know that 80% of the things that you will disagree about in your marriage over a lifetime spring from your personality, your preferences, and the way that you see the world? Guess what's not changing? 80%. Do you know that when you study couples that are actually say, hey, we have a really great marriage, we're really glad to be together, they don't disagree more frequently than couples that say my marriage is awful. What is the difference? It's not the disagreement level, it's the way they manage the disagreement. Okay, so you do not have to, you say, Mike, well, I'm so different. This person drives me nuts. Yep. That is not a defective marriage. That's an actual marriage. Okay, and it's just helpful to know that. Fourthly, if my spouse really, really loves me, after all this time, surely they will simply know what it is that I need. What I need. And, like, listen, I can give you tons of skills in a marriage counseling session. I cannot make you a mind reader. Okay, so that's a myth. Fifth, if you married the right person, you will always feel in love. Well, we've already heard witness of this, right? Twice. Nope. Here's the simple reason. You are flawed, and so is your spouse. And that is terribly, terribly annoying. And when you are feeling annoyed, it is very, very difficult to feel in love. Capiche? So it's a myth. When you work in your garden, when you work in your garden, you also have to pull the weeds, right? You have to, there are some things that can take over and choke out the life of your garden. Okay, the, the marriage literature is kind of like maturing, and now we, kind of know, we actually know what this is. There's like 30 years of like watching couples destroy themselves. Okay, it's on tape. You can break it down into little bitty bits. Okay, I'm going to give you the four things that you simply must watch out for and not let grow like mint in your garden. First is this. Dismissing. Dismissing your, your spouse's point of view. Now listen, here all the time. You just don't know. My spouse is an idiot. Like I really I have documentation. I brought papers and papers of this here. And I, it's actually, I actually have it in writing. They're just broken like in some places. Okay, and like, and like okay, so, you know, I may not be perfect, but I know better than that. Right, let me, let me, let's just review. Like, this is like reverse relationship rule number one. Your spouse's perspective matters not because they're right. 
but because the relationship matters. Okay, so when you, when you fail to accept influence from the person that you're living with, you dismiss out of hand the perspective as stupid or whatever or not worth listening to, you're just letting weeds grow in your garden. It just will not help your marriage thrive. So try, try just rehearsing to yourself. The relationship is more important than being right. Together, the relationship is more important than being right. Secondly, demeaning. When we criticize the person instead of the problem, that's demeaning. You never do what you say. You're totally unreliable. You didn't do the dishes. Okay? That's, you see the difference? Attack the problem that's threatening your relationship, not the, not the person. When we eye roll and mock you know, the, the, the little, we, we can read each other's body language, right? When you, you just know when your spouse knows that you're an idiot. Okay? And the communication does not have to be verbal. In fact, it's more effective usually when it's not. And some of you are really good at this, okay? You're letting weeds grow in your garden. Contempt is a killer. When we use sarcasm, and you're like, come on, Dell, that's my spiritual gift. Okay, but listen, not with your spouse. Not with your spouse. When we defend, you say, come on, you don't know what I'm up against. I can't even make a defense. Listen, here's the problem with defense. It escalates. The subscript of every defense is, it's actually not my problem, it's yours. Even when you're blaming something else, what you're saying is you're making a big deal about something that clearly shouldn't be made a big deal of. It's you. So then it invites the, your spouse to go, apparently they don't understand. They have a comprehending problem. So I need to review the facts and do it a little louder. Right? And then you start defending the way that, that you know, it escalates. It just, it just takes you to the races. You're letting weeds grow. Pull them up. Just, like, find it, you know, just say, hey, when my spouse comes to me with something, even when they don't do it right, the really good way, like, I'm not going to defend. I'm going to try to get to the, I'm going to try to fight for the relationship. Right? What about distancing? Yeah. You know, I hear, I hear couples a lot of times in church, like, Pastor, we don't fight. We never fight. I'm like, well, that kind of concerns me. Um, because, because, like, you know, is it an engaged kind of not fighting? Or are you, like, is it icy at your house? Like, do you call good, like, just this, you, you kind of, like, had a ceasefire agreement? And now you're going that way and you're going that way. More marriages will freeze to death, by the way, than will overheat. I would much rather have a couple throwing plates than icing each other out. Okay, so, so like, just, this is just a warning. Like, that, that could be a weed, okay, in your garden. All right, thirdly and lastly, you can actually, you can actually tend the things that grow in your marriage. First is this, closeness is the key. Think of it this way, like when you, when you come together and say I do, you have to be half crazy okay, at that point, right? Because you're basically, you're basically signing your life away to the unknown, right? It takes super amounts of energy 
like lots, you will never be more optimistic okay, than on that day, right? And it's, it seems rational and worth it, you know, at the moment. So you're in there, and what, what, what happens there is you're supercharged with energy and optimism about your love, and you're, it's like a marriage, it's like a top, you know, the little spin tops? Supercharged with energy, they spin really nicely. What happens to that top as it begins to lose energy? It becomes more erratic, starts, you know, eventually will topple if you don't re-energize it. Now listen, couples with the best intentions can lose their closeness because you go off to work for your marriage. You, you do all the housework for your marriage. You raise all these kids for your marriage. Nobody is conspiring to give you five seconds. Like, and you get, to home, you get home exhausted, and you go, I did it all for love. And you probably did. Great. However, in terms of your relationship energy, did any of that infuse the relationship with energy? In order to infuse the relationship with energy, you have to invest in what? The relationship. So here's, here's the question. Do you have any rituals that actually keep you close? And by the way, in a time-based culture, if they're not on your calendar, they're aspirations. It's not a plan. Like, so do you have a date night? Do, do you have, like, listen, I, I, I heard about a guy who said, my dog saved my marriage. I said, I got to hear this story. He said, yeah, we were fighting so bad, we couldn't even agree on who was going to walk the dog. We were, we were thinking about divorce. You know, we had raised our kids. It was about over. And we could not agree. We had this puppy, this thing. And we get home tired after work. And she's like, you do it. And I'm like, you do it. And the dog's about to wet the carpet. So finally, we said, we'll both do it. Now, every day, they had to come home and walk this dog for 15 or 20 minutes. What they found is over like a week and a half, they started to share about, well, what happened today? Huh, oh, really? You know, like, well, this is this happened. And all of a sudden, they start connecting. He says, my dog saved my marriage. Called off the divorce. 15 to 20 minutes a day could save your marriage. You invested in closeness. Do you have any ritual? Do you have anything that brings you back to connection? Secondly, this, the ways through the window. Reading an article about a therapist who said, you know, couples all the time, they give me way too much credit. They say, doctor, whoever, you know, you saved my marriage. Like, when I say, well, why do you say that? Well, when we come to your office, we can talk. When we're at home, we can't talk. Like, we just fight. But when we're there, we, like, we just have all these talks. And, like, you know, you saved our marriage. He said, no, I'm not saving your marriage. Being able to talk in a calm, reasonable way is saving your marriage. I'm just safeguarding and, like, not letting you go off the wall or whatever. Like, say really cruel things or, like, shortcut it or stomp out of the room. Like, I just keep you there with some guidelines long enough that you can talk to each other, that's what saved your marriage, not me. Now, what if you could, what if you could learn to do that on your own? It would save you thousands of dollars on marriage counseling. That's what it would do. Okay, so I'm going to show you very quickly. I can't, I can't like totally unpack this here, but this is like, this is the window of tolerance. Like basically, if you think of a number scale from zero all the way to 10, do you remember fight, flight, freeze like response in biology? Remember that, how like when you're under threat, your body gets super like defensive and it helps you survive, but like your blood pressure and everything gets hijacked and your, your thinking gets more constricted and like, you know, you're ready to either fight or run or sometimes some people freeze. That's what happens to you when you're under threat. Well, guess what an argument with your spouse is? Threat. 
It's a threat. And if you're not aware of what is going on inside of you and you try to have a conversation when you're upset, when you're angry, when you're anxious, when your thoughts are racing, when you're just trying to survive, or when you're freezing up and you feel like running and withdrawing and like just getting away, or you feel depressed or hopeless, guess what? That is not going to be a very good rehabilitative conversation. So if you understand how this is kind of working in you, what would be the loving thing to do when that starts happening in your body? Anybody? Take a break. Like, honey, this relationship matters so much to me, I'm getting upset, or you can tell I'm upset. Like, I'm not, I can't really bring something that's really going to be helpful right now. Would you mind if we took a break? And because you know this as a, as, a, as a spouse and you're committed to this, you're like, yes, but when are we coming back? Because don't you, don't you think about not coming back, right? So set a time, you come back. This may take a few times. It's a little bit cumbersome, right? But it is way, 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 way more effective than what you've been doing. Okay? And this is called going through the window. And I think it's biblical. I just don't have time to... It is biblical. I just don't have time to unpack it with verses right this second, okay? Because I'm going to close right here. Final thing. Cultivating in your garden. Seek what's shared. You guys are very different from each other. You have lots of dreams and passions, lots of gifts. Some of them overlap. Some of them don't. You are together for a reason. And the reason, part of the reason is in the overlap. Have you taken any time to be curious about what it is that you are uniquely gifted to do, what you want, what you care about, what your dreams are, what your visions are together? Like channeling some of your energy there can be a lot of fun, and it's really, really good for your marriage. Okay? It can help you. It can actually help you. Couples who are able to assess, enjoy, channel their strengths, handle their problems a lot better because it's not everything, right? You could do this. Okay, I'm, I'm done. How will you connect and cooperate with God's endless love? Man, it's coming from the heavens. It's never going to stop. It can make its way right into you. It can fire your fire from the inside out and give you resources that you never dreamed to endure. It can also help you share love in ways that are connective and beautiful and rich not perfect, okay? And this, you see this little box here, good marriages ask for help? I was hoping that would get into your subliminal consciousness because it's true. Good marriages ask for help. We were never intended to do this by ourselves. And often, we just, you know, we need to reach out to other people. We need prayer. We need, to, we need support in this. And sometimes you just got to go and say, we're stuck. You know, I need to, you know, we just need to go in and talk to a marriage counselor and no shame, right? It's, it's, the, way, it's the way relationships work. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for my friends. Um, thank you for your, most of all your endless love. Um, thank you that we were fired from the furnace of love. Thank you that there is a way all the way back home 
through Jesus Christ, thank you for his presence in our lives. Thank you for the way that it changes our possibilities. Help my friends in their relationships and in their marriages. May they grab something today that would help them, encourage them, give them hope. And forward moment, momentum in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace. Pastor Dan will be back next week. We'll continue our series.